welcome to Reader, I Murdered Him, the podcast. Every week, we do a deep dive into a fake crime and talk about books. Two of my favorite things. And this May is Cozy Mystery Month, where each week you'll be introduced to the first book in a cozy mystery series. And if you hear one you like, you'll have reading material for the rest of the summer. Here in Chicagoland, the weather has finally turned into spring, and I've been able to spend more and more time outside. I'm hesitant to call myself an outdoors person, because my favorite outdoor activity is finding a place to lounge with my book. But I do tend to spend a lot of time at the pool, or going on what I personally like to call hikes, but what any avid hiker would probably consider more meandering walks. But wherever you are, I hope you're having at least a few days of blue skies and perfectly temperate breezes. And if you do, do yourself a favor, plug in your headphones, and take this podcast outside. Whatever you may have been led to believe by other podcasts out there, fresh air isn't only for dead people. Francis G. Mather is saying goodbye to 1927 and toasting in 1928 with the help of two women as painted up and glittery as the back of the yard's speakeasy they're drinking in. But just like the back alley speakeasy in which Francis Mather chose to drink, which hadn't had any legitimate alcohol since 1919, the man is no better than homemade rot gut. Francis Mather was married. And while his wife was home taking care of their two children, without even a cheap glass of homemade rotgut to help her celebrate the new year, Francis was out at the bars, flirting, and planning. Francis Mather had decided he didn't quite like his wife much anymore. She'd already been to the hospital three times with an illness that only seemed to get worse, and Francis's only response to his sick wife was to talk to the life insurance man. So if 1928 was going to be a good year for Francis Mather, odds were it was going to be a terrible one for his wife. But Francis Mather never made it home that night. The coroner's official report stated acute alcohol poisoning. And he wasn't the only one to succumb to a night of excess ringing in a new year he'd never lived to see. But someone else knows the truth that Francis Mather didn't die from alcohol poisoning, but from the arsenic slipped into his drink at the bar. And the women of Chicago know exactly who to thank. I'm Risa P, and this is the story of the angel killer of Cook County. Ruby Newhouse is the daughter of the Cook County State's Attorney, and while she has a lot of fun dancing the nights away with Cook County High Society, Ruby has no aspirations for becoming a society wife, filling her days with, as she put it, babies and bad dresses. Ruby wants to follow in her father's footsteps and become a crusading lawyer, a prosecutor specifically. Because Ruby Newhouse believes guilty men should be held accountable. But not everyone in 1928 Chicago is supportive of her dreams or her career choice. 
And so for now, Ruby is playing the part that's expected of her. And it's on her return trip from one of these society parties, when Ruby's life begins to take a turn she never expected. As she's bending down to take off her heels, the front windows of her house shatter in a spray of bullets. And while no one is hurt, unless you count her mother's rose bushes, it does make Ruby think twice about her father and rumors she's heard about him being involved in uncovering a scandal that goes from small-time crime bosses all the way to Chicago City Hall. But State's Attorney Newhouse won't let himself be scared off the scent of corruption by a few bullets. And after ensuring his wife and younger daughters are safe under police watch, he escorts Ruby to an event at the Drake Hotel in an attempt to make some allies through networking and, perhaps, get a lead on his own case. And as Ruby's father is whisked away to mingle with all the important people of Cook County society, Ruby takes it upon herself to talk to Albert Rollins, her father's private secretary, to see if he knows anything about her father's case. With little luck. But the one good thing that does come out of the party is Ruby's acquaintance with journalist Vivian Forbes, a sharp-eyed journalist with a talent for spotting stories and details, but who hasn't been taken as seriously in her role because she's, you guessed it, a woman. But Vivian gives Ruby a name that will stick with her all night. If there's deep corruption to be rooted out in Chicago, it won't be resting with gangsters like Herman Coward, the current kingpin of Cook County who did their dirty deeds out where everyone could see, so everyone knew not to mess with them. True corruption would be with someone who had a job of legitimate power, one who seemed squeaky clean on the outside because it's easier to do truly terrible things when no one thinks you're capable of them. And if there's one person in Cook County who has just enough power to be dangerous and a squeaky clean reputation, It's Alderman Dennis Ferry, famous for being a dry, or someone who was pro-prohibition, with a wife who wrote for a newspaper column that seemed to offer no real information except a rant about how jazz, bobbed hair, and rouged knees were bringing on the death of society. Now, of course, Dennis Ferry didn't have a perfectly clean reputation. There were rumors rumors about some nasty stuff with his secretaries. Not that there were ever any official charges brought against him. Just women talking. Women warning other women. He was cold, cruel, demeaning, dangerous. The kind of man the angel killer of Cook County might want to do some late night investigating on. Now, at this point in the story, the angel killer of Cook County hadn't been documented by many journalists. In fact, the only one who took a consistent interest in the pattern of men, abusive, deadbeat, murderous, women-hating men, who ended up murdered, was Vivian Forbes. And it wasn't until after her expose on the supposed serial killer of Cook County that the angel killer really started getting a lot of headlines in the news. 
But one of the things Vivian notices as she's interviewing the women left behind in the wake of these deaths, the ones that Vivian attributes to the uncaught serial killer, were that every single woman believed that her life was better off. Not a single time had the angel killer struck a victim that didn't, in a skewed sense of justice, deserve to die. So how did the angel killer know exactly which men to strike? Which ones were truly dangerous with no chance of rehabilitation? Well, by some unconfirmed accounts, it was because the angel killer was telepathic able to see into the minds of their targeted victims to confirm, using the victim's own thoughts, that they were truly evil. And if that were the case, there wouldn't have been a darker, more villainous mind than that of Dennis Ferry. And while Ruby Newhouse and her father were celebrating his work as state's attorney at the Drake Hotel, Dennis Ferry was living out a fantasy of his own one where the state's attorney was dead and he was free to do whatever he wanted, one where he could continue his very hidden pattern of attacking women and methodically breaking down or getting rid of any man who stood in his way or tried to bring him to justice. Men like Ruby Newhouse's father. But there's no way Ruby Newhouse or her father could know that. So it's just a coincidence when Ruby becomes overcome and needs to leave the party early, unexpectedly. And her father, being both a gentleman and a loving father, sees her out, rushing her past crowds of Cook County High Society and the press that follow them around like flies looking for a story that stinks. In her exclusive tell-all interview with Vivian Forbes, Ruby said that as soon as they got to their car, she knew something was wrong. The driver is hunched over the steering wheel at an angle that looks like it was made to mimic sleep, but doesn't quite get it right. But before she can say anything, her father is opening the door to shake their driver awake. And that motion of opening the door triggers an explosion that sends both of them and shards of the car flying across the icy street. Ruby is taken to the hospital, shaken and cut up, but conscious, and all things considering in not too serious condition. Her father, however, is another story. He is unconscious and stays that way, taken immediately to intensive care. And the man who took responsibility for the car bomb? He shows up at the hospital shortly after that. Well, a few floors down in the morgue after hanging himself in his cell while under police custody. Is it possible that he did this to himself out of guilt or remorse? Yes, but unlikely. The odds are on it being a police cover-up. And a police cover-up means Dennis Ferry has some of Chicago's finest working for him. And every one of them refuses to budge on their position that gangster Herman Coward is behind the attack. Now, taking a break from our story here to talk about Herman Coward, he was exactly the kind of man you'd expect a Chicago underworld kingpin to be. 
He dressed himself in suits that cost more than an average person's mortgage, surrounded himself with beautiful women and burly, gun-toting men. He swelled out of everything. A man that, because he was loaded, would be described more as rotund than fat. And while his reputation would have you believe he was a brilliant man with a sharp wit, recently he'd undergone a kind of reverse transformation. He'd grown too addicted to his own products, constantly scrambling his brain with dope and dulling his senses with expensive illegal liquor. It would have been impossible for someone to reconcile the Herman Coward of the early 20s to the Herman Coward of 1928. And that might have had something to do with the fact that while Coward tried to keep up the visage of success, he was losing business. He was a man on the way out, and even killing the state's attorney wouldn't do much to restore his reputation which made him the perfect candidate for a bunch of corrupt policemen to finger for a crime. But not the best candidate for someone determined to figure out who the actual guilty party was. But even with the reality of Herman Coward's involvement looking more like fantasy to anyone willing to really look at the case, the press don't seem to be doing much digging. Because now they have a more sensational story to chase. At the same time, state's attorney Newhouse is recovering in the hospital. News has just officially broken of the angel killer. Nearly a dozen murders point back to her. The most recent one being a hired goon found just outside a building where Herman Coward was having his birthday party. And just like that, Dennis Ferry and possible corruption in City Hall? Old news. Because there's a woman loose on the streets killing terrible men. Today's episode is brought to you by Evan S., a new app that allows you to send messages discreetly and anonymously when keeping both your conversations and identity a secret are your top priority. Are you a hopeful politician looking to secure your run by taking out the competition? And by competition, do you mean anyone who knew you in college that might have any kind of damning evidence about the person you used to be? as opposed to the person you claimed to be in your best-selling and heart-winning rags-to-riches memoir? And have you found yourself wanting a partner to help you handle that dirty work? A partner who you don't want to know your identity, and who you'd very much like to keep under your thumb with blackmail rather than shared common goals? Then Evanes is the app for you. Download it wherever you get your apps today but maybe not on your regular phone. We can't help you with everything. The angel killer might finally be making front page news, but Ruby Newhouse doesn't seem to be too concerned about that because her best friend, Margaret Stowe, heir to the Stowe family shipping fortune, is being blackmailed to keep herself off the front page. Margaret is engaged and madly in love with her fiancé, 
but she's also young, and she enjoys going out and mingling with her peers at society functions. The problem is, at one of these functions, she met a man. A man who followed her around, making sure her cup was never empty. And just when her head was full of bubbles, too many to think straight, he starts telling her how beautiful she is. And that he just happened to be a photographer who specialized in the artistic portrayal of beautiful women like her. The story ends exactly where you'd expect it to. In 2023, this isn't a new trick. Predators have been using it on young, vulnerable women since the invention of the camera. But in 1928, it could have some particularly nasty consequences for Margaret. She'd lose her fiancé, possibly her inheritance. She'd be unmarriable and thrown out of this society, the only life she's ever known. In her mind, it seems easier to pay. Except now, the man is asking for more than Margaret can afford on her own. And even though the Stowes have a whole team of lawyers at their disposal, Margaret and Ruby both know exactly what a male lawyer would think about a young society girl who let herself get drunk and taken advantage of. The case wouldn't go in her favor, and it certainly wouldn't be handled discreetly. Besides, even if Margaret is able to get rid of her blackmailer, he'd done this to girls before her, and he would do it to girls after her. So now... Ruby has two men to bring to justice. Luckily for Ruby, it's easier to take down a man who preys on beautiful women in the open than one that does it from behind the walls of his power and position. All it takes is for Ruby to dress like she has money and wait at the right hotel bar before the blackmailer, who gives his name as Blanchot, finds her. And getting into his room at the hotel is just as easy. But as Ruby goes through his files of unsuspecting young women, she finds one name that doesn't seem to belong. Across one of the files, hidden in the back of a trunk, is the name Dennis Ferry. But Blanchot isn't pleased to find his new conquest going through these files. Things get violent and Ruby is forced to grab a bottle of mercury bichloride from Blanchot's nightstand and throw it in his face before swinging a fireplace poker at him. And her aim is very good. Too good. Blanchot isn't just incapacitated. He dies. The scuffle from the room loud enough to alert staff outside that something is wrong. And while Ruby is able to rescue the photos of her friend and the file on Dennis Ferry, she doesn't remember to destroy the camera itself and any film that may have been inside it. Film that, when developed, may have pictures of her on it. And as if being the last person seen alive with a corpse, in a compromising position, no less, isn't bad enough, when Ruby returns home, she finds that her youngest sister, Henrietta, is missing. And on a table in the parlor is a plain, pale blue envelope addressed to Ruby with hair inside, and the words, You were warned, 
written across a sheet of paper. Determined to trade herself for her sister and still find a way to take Dennis Ferry down, Ruby makes her way to one of his known haunts, the Bull and Owl Club. Exactly what happens at the Bull and Owl Club remains a bit of a mystery. Even in Vivian Forbes' tell-all pieces, an extensive investigative series on both the corruption of Dennis Ferry and the Angel Killer. But by all accounts, there was some sort of confrontation here. One that left Dennis Ferry dead, and the safe where he kept all the evidence of his past and future crimes was left open for everyone to see. But that confrontation was between Dennis Ferry and, surprisingly, his underworld rival, Herman Coward, who allegedly shot Dennis Ferry to death. Ruby Newhouse and her sister Henrietta escaped. If Ruby was ever in the Bull and Owl Club to begin with. There are contradictory stories as to her whereabouts, and most of the Cook County Police Department actually says that she was in jail after being picked up on some minor indiscretion. And if it seems Dennis Ferry came to an anticlimactic end, the angel killer simply disappeared on the wind after this. Um, after some lobbying by Margaret Stowe and a cutting expose into a policing system that allowed the most vulnerable to be forced to live with their abusers even after seeking help from the law by Vivian Forbes, the investigation into the angel killer's identity was shelved, provided no new bodies started turning up in the streets. Now, there are rumors, unconfirmed rumors, that the angel killer was, in fact, the state's attorney's daughter, Ruby Newhouse herself, who showed all the necessary cunning of a serial killer in her pursuit of justice for Dennis Ferry. But these rumors are never substantiated. In fact, Vivian Forbes, who we've already established was one of the primary journalists covering the angel killer murders, never even entertained the idea that Ruby Newhouse and the angel killer were the same person. So while the identity of the angel killer might remain unknown, the Chicago streets remained a little safer because of her, and the city of Chicago was a little less corrupt because of Ruby Newhouse. Thank you for listening to Reader, I Murdered Him. Today's episode was inspired by the book Murder for the Modern Girl by Kendall Culper. It's a unique cozy mystery because it follows the journey of a well-meaning serial killer, but it doesn't have any of the gore of something like the Dexter series, so it somehow still comes across as charming and lighthearted. Um, but it is also a supernatural series. There's telepathy and shapeshifters, which makes for a fun twist, but isn't everyone's favorite in mysteries, so keep that in mind before going into it. Today's ad was based on the series You, the TV show, not the books, um, because this is a rare case of the Netflix series being just a little more entertaining than the books it's based on. If you like the books and want to talk about them, 
join the Reader I Murdered Him podcast book club on Goodreads. The link for that is in the show notes, as well as the links for a few other places you can connect with me online. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing, rating, and leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really like it, go annoy all your friends about it in real life until they subscribe too. If you have any news, stories, or feedback you'd like to share, you can email me at readerimurderedhimpod at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening, and don't forget to come back next week for another episode of Reader, I Murdered Him. Salvis Mr. Lee.